I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. 
he shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall live at odds with all his kin so she named the lord who spoke to her you are elroy she said for she said have i really seen the god who sees me and remained alive the child grew and was weaned and abraham made a great feast on the day that isaac was weaned but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laying with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Shall Sarah, whatever Sarah sa says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So a few years after Mahatma Gandhi died, one of his advisors, his name was Nadu, being asked in an interview about Gandhi's ascetic um, lifestyle, said this. He said, you would never guess how many people it takes, how much it costs to keep that man in poverty. <laughs> you could say the same about Abraham. Abraham's story is like a grand superhighway. It begins with his call from God and the blessing that came with it. And then the promise of a son for his wife, Sarah. But in other parts of the story, we can see the soil that is turned up to make that superhighway. The cost of keeping that man like Gandhi, that keeping that man and his blessing, the number of people it takes to keep him as a great patriarch in Israel's memory. In Genesis 21, we see Abraham as, as like a car driver who says something like this, I never have road accidents myself, but I see a good many of them in my rearview mirror. In Genesis 16 and 21, we read Hagar's story. Reading Hagar's story is like looking over the minority report of the Old Testament. And it's also, like, it's also like peeling an onion. Each layer, each layer of this report, you, you take off more layers and it makes you cry a little bit harder as you pull off layers of this onion. And so today I'm going to start with the outline of Hagar's story. And then I'm going to peel back two or three layers of this onion to see what we might find underneath this story. As the story goes, God promised Abraham he would be the father of a great nation. But his wife, Sarah, was old and childless. And so we peel the first layer of this onion back a little bit. We see Sarah and Abraham could not see a way for God's promise to be fulfilled for them. And so they took matters into their own hands. And Sarah suggests Abram sleep with her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, and get an heir that way. Hagar conceived and straight away began to think less of Sarah. And so Sarah complained to Abraham. And Abraham said, do what you want with her. So Sarah was cruel to Hagar. 
And Hagar ran away. And an angel of the Lord met Hagar in the wilderness and told her to return and submit to Sarah and, and look forward to having a great many descendants. Hagar called the Lord Elroy, the God who sees. And in due course, she had a, a, a son named Ishmael. Later, much to the surprise of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah had a son, Isaac, that she did not expect. But Sarah once again demanded that Abraham throw Hagar and Ishmael out. And God backed, Hera, God backed Sarah up on that. But God also promised that Ishmael would become the father of a great nation. Abraham packed Hagar up, sent her off into the wilderness with meager provisions, which duly ran out. Hagar placed her son under a bush and, and just wept and watched for him to die. Feel the tears that, that take effect when you hear Hagar say the words, do not let me look on the death of my child, Lord. As the story says, Hagar eventually went and she found a wife for Ishmael from Egypt, and, and that's the story of Hagar in its complicated simplicity. And so now let's look at the story a little more closely and peel back another layer of this onion. Hagar's story. Hagar's story. What if it's Israel's story? Hagar is a slave, just as the children of Israel later became slaves under Pharaoh. Just as Israel became a threat to Pharaoh, when Israel grew in number, Hagar becomes a threat when she has a son. Just as Israel ran away from bondage in Egypt, so Hagar runs away from the cruelty of her mistress. And just as Moses met God in the wilderness, so Hagar meets God in the wilderness. Just as God promises Abraham that Israel will become a great nation, so God tells Hagar that Ishmael will also be a great nation. Hagar's story is Israel's story, maybe. But there's a crucial difference. There, there's a crucial difference. When God tells Hagar she will have many descendants, the prophecy is not accompanied by the same promise that Abraham had or any blessing at all. It's just a stark foretelling. There's no guarantee that God will be on Hagar's side in this story. If the first definitive moment in Israel's history, Israel's story, was, was the exodus, then the second definitive moment is the exile. Like, just as Hagar is like Israel and running away from slavery and having her own exodus, so later she's like Israel and being thrown into exile. Like Israel, Hagar knows both exodus and exile. And just as it is for Israel, exile for Hagar is an agonizing and a purifying time. She and her son survive and adapt and meet God there too, just as Israel did in Babylon. And yet again, God seems to not be on Hagar's side. As one Bible scholar puts it, Hagar experiences exodus without liberation, revelation without salvation, wilderness without covenant, wanderings without any land at all, promise without any fulfillment, and unmerited exile without ever returning home. That's Hagar's story. When God tells Hagar she will have many descendants, the prophecy is not accompanied by a promise. 
But it's, it's not just in Exodus and exile that Hagar mirrors Israel's story. In Genesis 21 and 22, they sit right side by side one another. They're obviously meant to be read together. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. At the last minute, God intervenes and provides a ram instead. In Genesis 21, God allows Abraham to follow Sarah's wishes and cast Hagar and her son out into the wilderness where Ishmael is on the point of death when God intervenes and provides water. Over and over and over again, we are being told that Hagar's story is Israel's story. And yet there's this constant irony and paradox that Hagar is the first person steamrolled to make this story possible. Okay. So now take another layer off the onion and prepare to cry a little bit more for Hagar or just a little bit more in general. The story of Hagar and Sarah is the story of Arab and Jew. Possibly the most distressing line and the whole story comes when Sarah sees her son Isaac and Hagar's son Ishmael playing together and she cannot bear it. If ever there was a description of the sins of the parents being visited on the children, surely this is it. Isaac and Ishmael are set at odds against one another because Sarah couldn't abide any compassion. Sarah couldn't abide any comparison or comradeship between her son and Hagar's. But again, at this point, the interpretation of the story is soaked in irony again. The force behind the establishment of the state of Israel today is that the Jews of history felt less like Sarah and more like Hagar. It is because they've been thrown into slavery, subjected to cruelty, forced to flee, frequently cast out, that they came to long for a home to call their own. And it is because in the middle of the last century, they sat, pow they sat powerless like Hagar watching their offspring die that they came to see a homeland as the unmitigated necessity and its preservation as an absolute good that continues to justify a number of things that are less than good. The paradox of the Middle East today is that both sides think they're Hagar while meanwhile acting like Sarah. The sense of grievance in the Muslim Middle East today arises because so many Muslims perceive that the mantle of Abraham has passed to America. Rightly or wrongly, few Muslims in the Middle East see themselves as the Abraham about to cast out Hagar, that is, the state of Israel. Instead, many Muslims in the Middle East see themselves as Hagar, ill-used and cast aside by the feckless Abraham that they regarded as the United States, aided, agitated, goaded by the jealous Sarah that is the state of Israel. This is how they see themselves. The problem is that you have both Muslims and Jews who both consider themselves Hagar while acting a little bit like Sarah. Yet again, this story comes back to haunt the, the 
the children of destiny. Much of the Muslim world says America doesn't have any road accidents. I can't find any road accidents in America's story, but we are the casualties in the rearview mirror of America. This is how they see themselves. This is the turmoil currently in the Middle East. Muslims tend to identify with Hagar, seeing America as Abraham and Israel as Sarah. Sure, Hagar provoked Sarah, something rotten, but Hagar had by far the worst end of the deal. And the tragedy is that the children of Hagar and the children of Sarah don't get to play very much with each other. If they did, they might forget their parents don't get along. What are we to do about this disturbing story, this story that shakes us out of our simple notions of God's call, God's promises, God's faithfulness, and leaves us crying as if we've been peeling back an onion? This story is an education in human complexity. No one comes out of it well. We, we feel sorry for Sarah, dragged halfway across the Middle East in pursuit of a destiny revealed to her husband, but never properly revealed to her. There's a good number of people who know exactly what that feels like. Sarah's childless, and, and that for many people is an agonizing condition. But when Sarah uses her slave woman for her own purposes and then blames the slave woman for the consequences of what were, in fact, her, her own decisions, we lose sympathy for her. And, and we feel sorry for Hagar in this story. But we ca be careful before, before we turn this into a good people versus bad people story because note that it was when she humiliated Sarah that Hagar's fortunes began to take a downturn. Some of us may sympathize with Abraham in this story, wringing his hands as the women in his life outmaneuver him. Others may regard him as weak and lacking authority or any sense of justice in this case. As for God, it, it's not clear whether God has it in for Hagar or simply allows Abraham and Sarah to face the consequences of their own lack of faith. But who among us hasn't doubted God's promises? Who among us hasn't turned our head from injustice and simply wanted not to look? Who among us hasn't said yes in, in, a, in a vindicative way when yes really means I'm getting one up on someone? Who among us hasn't blamed God for situations we really got ourselves into? So, so to read this story is to realize that freedom and salvation is not a simple story of progress from wilderness to destiny, from wilderness to promised land. It's a whole lot more human than that. Every character in the story is deeply flawed, just like you and me. Even the description of God offered here is pretty uncomfortable. It's very common to see Genesis 22, the story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac as a troubling story because it seems to portray a God who wants distressing things to happen to us. But it could be that this story from Genesis 21 is an even more troubling story because it seems to portray a God who not only lets people suffer but actually prefers some people over other people. In our desire to celebrate Abraham, it would be very easy to miss the troubling attitude of God to Hagar, and it would be easy to overlook our tendency to identify with, with Sarah 
the one who brought her who bought her freedom at terrible cost to another child of God. So why then is this story in the Bible? If the story of Abraham was a simple march towards the promised land, you'd think this story would have been left out. It cuts against that story. If, if it really is the winners who write the history, why would they bother to waste time on the losers, especially the losers they've treated so badly? Maybe those who looked back on Israel's history realized who Hagar really was. That's why the story notes that she's the first person in scripture to be visited by an angel. The only person in scripture to give God a name, to name God, El Roy, the God who sees me, who sees us. She's the only woman to receive God's promise of descendants. She's the first woman to weep over a dying child. She's a pretty amazing woman. But we still have to struggle with why God seems to reject her. Why does God reject her? And for Christians, the fact that God seems to reject her has to be the key to why this is in the story. Think about it. This is the person who was in the midst of the story of God's covenant. This is a person who embodied Israel's exodus and exile. This is a person whose suffering seemed to be required if Israel was going to live. This is a person whose suffering was exacerbated, even brought about by the character flaws in those who were God's chosen people. This was a person who was cast out and in her moment of deepest agony wondered why her God her God had forsaken her. This was a person who was despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. Who does that sound like? This is why the story of Hagar is in the Bible, because her story, the story of Exodus, exile, rejection by woman, man, even God, is the story of Jesus. For Christians, the story, this story is in the Bible to make sure we remember that Jesus looks more like Hagar than he does like Abraham. For Christians, the story of Hagar means that there can be no freedom, no good news, no salvation, no gospel that's won by treading down, expelling, abusing, exploiting Hagar. But there's not an ounce of sentimentality in this story. At the very beginning, we're told that Hagar is no angel. The point is not that Jesus identified with the honest, but with the browbeaten, oppressed peoples of the earth. The point is that Jesus is to be found among those who may well have contributed to their own downfall, but are in all likelihood more sinned against than sinning. And either way are to be found today wandering and weeping and scorned and rejected. It's a complicated story with intense feelings laced with cruelty and betrayal and terror and despair. It's complicated, but in the light of the gospel, it's actually quite simple. We have a pretty good sense of which kinds of people, you have a pretty good sense of which kinds of people in which kinds of places read this story and instinctively identify with not with Sarah, not with Abraham, but with Hagar.
You may feel it's, it's hard to see Jesus, hard to feel close to him, hard to know he is truly alive, hard to feel truly seen. Hagar's tale is a story in which one person seems to have to suffer so that God's people may flourish. We all know people who are on the underside of life, on the underside of history, who find themselves in car wrecks in the rearview mirror of our own promises. You may feel like you're looking for Jesus. Maybe in meeting Hagar, that's where you have found him. Would you pray with me? Just as we pull back the layers of this story of Hagar, this handmaid's tale, God, we ask that you would pull back the layers on us. Pull back the facades that we set for ourselves, that we lay out front to guard ourselves, to guard our hearts, to guard our fears. And make us vulnerable with you, God, the God who sees, God who sees all the way down through our layers, the God who sees all the way down through the layers of the story of Hagar into the history of the Arab and Jewish people, into the story of Jesus, which is why we've gathered today all of these layers to this story, all these layers to us, you make us beautifully complicated. God, we pray for the Hagars of this world, people who feel beaten up, forsaken, rejected, even by you. We lift up to you those in the path and in the aftermath of this hurricane. We lift up to you students starting school without what they need and with way more than they need in, in the chaos of everyday life. We lift up to you the conflict in the Middle East that persists from this story of Sarah and Hagar. Ask God for peace there in a place we don't really know if peace is possible, but we know you are the origin of it. And everywhere in life, God, where we feel like we identify with Hagar but seem to be acting a whole lot more like Sarah, Forgive us, God. We pray together that prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. To this I hope.